Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Nehemiah 2. It's in the Old Testament after 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And we're going to be in Nehemiah 2 this morning. So the last time we looked at the background, Nehemiah 1, if you weren't here last Sunday, um, anytime I start a new book, a new letter, Old Testament, New Testament, I give a whole bunch of information. What date did it take place? When was it written? Who was it written to? Who wrote it? Why did they write it? So it's really foundational. You know, what was the political situation? What did the empire look like? What did the world look like? And we covered all this in the first chapter. So get it for free off the website so you can gotta get a little bit of a background on what we're talking about. This morning, the message is titled, Finding Favor with the King. And I kinda did a little bit of a play on words because Nehemiah finds favor, first of all, with the king of the universe, God, which is the most important. And then God opens the heart of the actual king, who's a historical figure. You can find it in your encyclopedia. His name is Artaxerxes Longimanus I, Artaxerxes I Longimanus, excuse me, and he ruled the Persian Empire in the 5th century BC. Uh, this is important because Nehemiah, you know, he grows up as, a, as a, a God-fearing man. He's a believer in God. He grows up in captivity. The Persians took over after the Babylonians. They ran the world, and he's never seen his hometown of Jerusalem. So he sends a delegation back to Jerusalem and to give him a report. Delegation comes back to Nehemiah and says, the place is a mess. You know, the gates are burned with fire, the walls are knocked down. Yeah, the temple's standing, but the people are really kind of, they're a little despondent, they're depressed. You know, it's a, it's a sad situation to look at. So Nehemiah's cut to the heart, and Nehemiah pretty much wants to help. You know, he's not one of those people that points the finger and says, well, I hope somebody does it you know, pointing the fingers everywhere. He says, you know what, I want to do it. I want to help. Uh, but he's unqualified, certainly. He's grown, grown up in a very cushy environment in the king's quarters. Um, he's not a trek leader. He's not a construction worker. He's not a military man. And this is going to be a long and arduous trip and then sub subsequent project. And, and I kind of went through a little bit of a monologue how Nehemiah might have thought to himself, gee, I'd like to go, but I, I, I could use some help, and if I get the help, would the king let us go? And if he did let us go, would we have protection? And if we had protection, would the king finance the project? Because this is going to be a fortune. This is going to be monumental. But it's really cool because, you know, as I, I said in the first sermon, the first chapter is that God doesn't necessarily call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And that's where, what we have. Now, in, as we go through this, there is a sub-theme of leadership that anybody, any of us, can learn from. So let's check it out. Verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Remember in, in chapter 1, he's a cupbearer. He's in the, the innermost sanctum of the king's court. He tastes the wine and the food, you know, it was a good life as long as somebody didn't try to poison the king, and you got it first, and that was the whole idea, so the king wouldn't die. So he's, he's in the king's presence again, and four months have passed, really, since chapter one. Uh, we're now in 
we're now in Nisan, where we were in Kislev in chapter 1. So there's this four-month period that's passed since Nehemiah finds out about the despondent nature of the people in Jerusalem. And he's now before the king again in his court, and he can't hide his emotions. And he notes that he was never said before the king before. And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I like to pick up on little things in the scripture, okay? And you, what we find out is that Nehemiah was professional. And I can tell you that as Christians, we can learn from this too. We can look at his life. He didn't particularly have the best boss in the ideal situation, but you know what? Nehemiah was a professional. And the question is, as, as Christians, are we professional? And for no, for no other reason, main reason, but to win others to Christ, right? To win the world to Christ. Now, in those four months, Nehemiah was prayerful and patient about his agenda. He wasn't pushy. And you know what? He did submit to God's timing. And you and I, I mean, if we had a situation that was really rough, four months could seem like a really long time. Three, six, nine, twelve, 120 days is a long time when you're praying something and there's an urgency. But God's timing is always best. He moves the hearts, he gets things into place, and when he's ready, he lets you know, and the situation opens up. Verse 2, Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then I became dreadfully afraid. Now remember, eastern monarchs, right? Ancient monarchs, they could, if they were in a bad mood, they could have their guards take your head off. So understand where this is coming from. And he said to the king, but Nehemiah responds, he says, May the king live forever. And that was a term that they used back then. Why should my face not be said when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? You know, you don't get to be king of a vast empire and maintain your rulership for some time if you're a dummy. He, king Artaxerxes was able to read people. And not only does he see that Nehemiah looks sad, but he, he says, you know what, this isn't sick. You're not sick. This isn't uh, just you didn't sleep enough. He goes right for it, the king. He goes, this is nothing else but sorrow of the heart. So he's able to pick up on what's going on in Nehemiah's countenance and his emotions. But check this out. The king seems to care about Nehemiah. And maybe part of it was due to the fact that Nehemiah was very professional. They, they were from different faiths, different cultures. He was a servant. He had no choice. But you know what? He was a good witness to the king. And the question is, how do we relate to people in the world? You know, sometimes good. Sometimes we will find favor with someone, a boss or a manager or a CEO. Other times, and you never know. It could be the complete opposite. You know, they find out you're a Christian. You live a certain life. You adhere to certain standards, and they just hate you because you are carrying God's message. In this case, it was the former. And sadly, other times, that person might have had a bad taste in their mouth from maybe obnoxious Christians, and now you have to show them, see some head shaking, you have to show them, no, this is really what Christianity is supposed to look like. But, like Nehemiah, our desire as believers, now remember, this was written some 2,500 years ago. I'm talking to you as if this just came off the newsfeed and it happened in another country. That's the beauty of God's word, right? It's got power, it's got the spirit, it has life in it, and it's applicable to any point in time in history. 
So Nehemiah and hopefully we try to build bridges. However, it's an unusual relationship because the king is still the king and he couldn't forget that. He says, at one point, I was dreadfully afraid. He doesn't know how the king is going to take his concern or his, his uh, feelings at the time. And the question is, is a man or a woman of God allowed, allowed to temporarily uh, be in a state of emotion? be in a state of, I'm, I'm really worried about this situation, what's going on, of course. Um, actually, this past Wednesday night, I taught on Elijah, one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. And in chapter 19, he's a mess. <laughs> he's a hot mess. He's all over the map. He's emotional. He wants to die. I mean, I love it because it just shows that you and I can be used by God. One of the, some of the, and, and again, we, some, it's, Time has a funny way of us looking back and going, oh, that person was perfect. No, they weren't. <laughs> because the Bible records their failings as well as their victories. Um, so, listen, even though he says, listen, I was dreadfully afraid, he does say, he does, he does blurt it out. Right? He does have the courage to, oh, it's nothing. No, he, he says, this is, this is the situation. It's, it's bad. And it's, it's upset. It's upsetting. So, verse 4 uh, then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So the king opens the door, and then he puts it back on Nehemiah. Well, what do you want me to do? Okay, I'm, I'm opening the door for you. Speak, you know, bring your request before me. And it's, check it out, he says, like, he prays to God, and then he talks to the king. This is amazing, where Nehemiah has this, and I love this, he has this dual conversation. He's talking to the king, and he, and he, he probably shoots up what I call a flare prayer. You know, when you're out in the middle of the ocean at night, and you're in a, a lifeboat, and you're waiting for the big ship to pick you up, and you, you shoot that flare up, you want somebody to see it so they can come rescue you. So this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's talking to the, he's having a dialogue. I don't know if he looked up or in his mind, he just was like, all right, Lord, I, I need some help here. And it's amazing as Christians, we're able to communicate in two worlds at the same time. And I've done this. And I've had situations with people, good, bad, maybe the door's open. And uh, as I'm talking to the person, you get, you get to be a good multitasker when you become a Christian. In my mind, I'm saying, Lord, uh, this seems like it's from you. Help me out here. And, and I just love that about what we're able to do to negotiate in both worlds, the spiritual world and the temporal world. Now, some who don't understand this might think you're off your rocker, but, but you know you can do this because you've been revived spiritually. Now you have insight into the things that happen that are in the unseen world. Again, these, uh, this is a short and sweet prayer. It's an emergency. And Lord, I just... I just I need your help right now. George Morrison wrote, quote, Silence on Nehemiah's part would have been misinterpreted. Had Nehemiah closed his eyes or lingered in devotion, the king would have suspected treason. Okay, and, I, and I add to that in, that, in that era, poisonings, assassinations, coups were very common. So the king, as much as he cared about Nehemiah, he also had to be perceptive to make sure that his own life was not threatened. Why is my servant being like this? And he, and he gets to the root of the issue. So Nehemiah, boy, the, talk about a green light that opens up for him, and he walks through that door. Now, in, in law enforcement, there's something called Cooper's Colors of Situational Awareness. 
and law enforcement officers are teach, taught in your mind you can't be in code white, which means you're oblivious, you're just relaxed all the time. Then you have yellow, orange, and then red. You're in the danger zone and you're hypervigilant and nothing could surprise you. Well, there also needs to be a situational awareness in the spiritual realm. As Christians, as we go through life, we can't be in code white either. We always have to be ready for an opportunity that the Lord is going to open for us. I think that's really neat. I mean, you could be in a hostile work environment and somebody from the next cubicle could wheel their chair over into yours and say, I gotta ask you a question. You might think they're gonna talk about work and they say, this place is insane. How do you keep your composure? How do you keep your calmness? And if you're in code white, spiritually you might be, uh, yeah, uh, well, that, uh, yeah. And you, you don't know how to answer that question because you weren't prepared for it, right? But if we're in a little bit of a, a vigilance spiritually, we always allow that opportunity to come into our lives and to respond to it. Best way, talk about an open door. Some try so hard to witness and to share Christ and it's just the door is always slammed in their face. These are situations where the door is open and I've talked to somebody who said, yeah, that was me first, and the second time the person came to me, and, and I was ready. <laughs> so, and I ended up being able to witness to that person, so that's pretty neat. But, you know, we're always ready to be doing spiritual battle, and it doesn't mean to slay the unbeliever. It means to do battle in the heavenlies and to be able to be a part of lifting the film off the person's eyes so they can see spiritually as well, and they end up in the same place when the relationship with God. Verse 6. So the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, or the Euphrates, that was understood as, the mighty Euphrates. Actually, Babylon was built on the mighty Euphrates. That they might, must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple, for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Always gives God credit. That's, that's also something we have to consider as Christians, always giving God the glory. Sometimes, it, it, this is a weird thing I've seen, you know, praying, a person's praying, and then all of a sudden God opens the door, and the person kind of leaves God in the dust. They needed him when there was a problem, and now, oh, and then they start taking credit for it. That's, that's not the way it works. You know, he, this was an amazing thing, amazing door. And, and maybe Nehemiah could have been lifted up with pride and said, listen, I got the silver tongue. You know, I went to the king, and I, I told his friends, I went to that court, and, and he just said, oh, Nehemiah, what can I do for you? He didn't do that. He said it was because the hand of my God was upon me. He always gave God credit, always give God the glory. So the king wants logistics for the trip and the project, and basically he gives him a blank check for whatever he needs. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the Lord's hand. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Nehemiah, thanks God. Thank you for turning the king's heart. I really needed this. Nehemiah also organ was also organized, and he said, I'm basically going to need the following. Number one, I'm going to need letters of authority. I just love history. Can't help myself. I, I got to say, all right, so what else happened, and what was going on? And, and I'm looking at this whole thing, and I'm looking up maps and stuff, but you know, back in those days, uh, they had these letters that they would write, 
It would be the king's handwriting, the king's signature, and there would also be a, a great seal of the kingdom of Persia that usually was wax was put on it and the seal was impressed in it. And, you know, this was your authority. This was your passport as you went through the different regions to try to get to your destination. Hey, anybody questions you? This is from the king. Oh, okay, go ahead, free passage. Don't pay a toll, just go. Uh, but he's saying, I need these letters. You know, I need it for the provincial governors on the west side of the Euphrates. And in general, if I'm questioned. He also, verse 8, basically said, I'm going to need supplies. You know, I got a whole list of supplies. I need, I need lumber. I need nail guns. I need air compressors. I got to go to Home Depot, load it up on my tractor trailer. Oh, wait a minute. That's anachronistic. Asaph was Home Depot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or Lowe's, whatever you prefer. So he goes, I got to go to Asaph. I need some supplies. I don't know what it's going to look like when I get there. So he's, it's pretty awesome that he's taking this, this. Remember, this is a commission from God. He's taking it seriously. You know, just going over in his mind all the things he needs, praying, Lord, let me not forget something as I'm on my way down there. Now, I do say this, and people may say, gee, I, I don't understand, Pastor Joe, you're making an analogy. You keep talking about Christians. Remember, Nehemiah was a Christian before Christianity. Nehemiah was a believer. Nehemiah studied God's word. Nehemiah prayed. Okay, we're, we're just, Nehemiah and we, we're in different dispensations. We're in different time periods. But we worship the same God. We believe in the same God. We pray to the same God. We read the same word. Okay, so very, very simple. I mean, we can apply this book to, our, to the, how we deal with people in the world, our careers, our professional associates. There's all kinds of applications here in any type of leadership. You, you run a business. You're a CEO. You're going to get a promotion. You just got a promotion. You just got a job that you always wanted. All this stuff applies. Think about it. Right? Now, something interesting happens between verse 8 and verse 9 because in verse 9 he says, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, or the Euphrates, and gave them the king's letter. So between 8 and 9, something happens. Artaxerxes Longimanus issues a decree and says, Go. I'm going to let you lead this project. I'm going to let you, you know, be a part of rebuilding the gates and the walls of Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, what book did we recently cover that it has some incredible prophecies that start with this decree and end up with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Call it out, please. Yell it out. Louder. Thank you. I don't hear very well. <laughs> so the book of Daniel. Great. Thank you. Uh, and in Daniel chapter 9, we see this. And again, on any given Sunday... You know, this is a very community church. You know, we're in Jamesburg. People come and go. It's very fluid uh, where we are ge geographically. And in any given Sunday, I could have somebody in here who's not buying the whole God thing, who maybe feels like they were dragged or cajoled or bribed into coming here this morning. So it's my job to teach apologetics, which is why we believe what we believe. It isn't blind faith. It's articulable faith. It's intellectual faith, okay? I use a lot of history. So what's really amazing is that is that in the book of Daniel, which if you wouldn't mind turning to, chapter 9, starting with verse 24, we see that Daniel in the uh, 6th century B.C. predicts, right, through the angel Gabriel, that the Messiah would come. Remember, this is before Christ, B.C. And what he does is he makes this prediction, he writes it down, 
And this was recorded in all kinds of Bibles. You could talk about the, the Septuagint, you know, all these different manuscripts, different languages, different dates. It's the same words. And what Jewish people knew and understood was Jesus Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming based on the prophecies that God gives. And that's one of the ways God proves himself is to say, I'm going to tell you something that's going to happen hundreds of years down the road before it happens in great detail. And then you research and you go, wow, yeah, he did say that, didn't he? That's impressive. So I'm just going to read this, and I'm only going to cover really one portion of this, which is the part about the Messiah. And God chose to do this. He, with Artaxerxes' decree of sending the Jews back, he started this invisible prophetic time clock starting to count to the day that the Messiah would present himself, Luke 19, in the triumphal entry. Pretty impressive. So he says in verse 24, Daniel 9, this is Gabriel telling Daniel what God is saying. Um, He said, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, it's a tall order, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy or the most holy place. Now therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, week in Hebrew is Shavua, which is a seven-year period, very similar to our decade. So a little math has to be done. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. If you leave here today, I would urge you, if you didn't get the study, go back to the website and you can pick up the Daniel 9 uh, prophecies. Okay, we, we, I don't want to take too much time, but I want to package it with context and respect to Nehemiah. And I just show you how all the books of the Bible start to interlock with each other like a puzzle. So Daniel addresses in these few verses, number one, Artaxerxes' decree, 445 B.C. Okay, got that. Second thing these few verses discuss is Jesus Christ's advent, especially in the triumphal entry in the first century A.D., which is what I want to focus on. Three, Messiah's crucifixion a week later, roughly. Four, the Roman-Jewish wars culminating in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem again. This is history. We know this. We can find this in the encyclopedia. Fifth point, Jerusalem with respect to the third temple rebuilt, which is our future, and the Antichrist taking it over and setting himself up as a god to be worshipped. Six, finally, or not finally, but the Antichrist defeat Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom and beyond uh, with the end of sin. And the seventh is that all prophecy comes to an end because all things have been fulfilled, all right? Pretty heavy stuff. You know, Christianity is a thinking person's faith because God gives very simple things like the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins. That's very simple. Trusting in him, looking to that sacrifice, that's how you get to heaven. Not through giving money or doing good works or good over bad. It's what Christ did. That's the simple part of it. This is a little bit more intricate, but it's also very fascinating. 
What we find is in verse 25, the street and the wall would be built in troublesome times. Now, the Persians sent the Jews back a few times, and we have to figure out which decree we're talking about. So in 538 BC, Cyrus sends the Jews back, but this didn't happen then. This is the decree under Artaxerxes in 445 BC. Nehemiah 4 says the, the walls of Jerusalem were built with, the, uh, with those building it with a sword in one hand, a, a trumpet, uh, a trowel. Uh, they had to build the wall and also defend from attacks. So hence the, tr the troublesome times. You take 445 BC, add those 69 weeks or Shabuah, the seven-year period, multiply the 69 by 7, you get 483 years, account for the adjustment from the Babylonian to Julian calendar, and what you get is right around April in the year of 32 AD is Christ coming. So just to do this, timelines. We, we, we look at timelines in mathematics from left to right. God sees the whole timeline at the same time. We just see the piece of the timeline where we are. So I'm to your left, 45, 445 BC, the decree goes out. You start counting. I think it's 183,880 days. Keep going, keep going, keep going. 5th century BC, 4th century BC, 3rd century BC, 2nd, 1st, time zero. 1st century AD. Put all those numbers together. You have Jesus Christ coming and uh, presenting himself in Jerusalem as the Messiah. And if that, any of that is say, wow, that's heavy, send me an email, talk to me after service. I'd be more, I don't want to go through Daniel all over again, but you get the picture. Right? You can fake a lot of things in life. It's kind of hard to fake what time period you came in. Okay? Uh, what family, what bloodline. And I know some people that if they knew what family they would be born into, they might say, you know what, Lord, I'll take the second bus. I'm not going into that kooky family. So some of you have that issue. <laughs> but Jesus Christ came at the exact appointed time when the Messiah, that's why today people say, oh, this one's the Messiah. No, he's not. Because the Messiah came in the first century based on Daniel 9, Haggai 2, 6 through 9, and Genesis 49, 10. They're all time-sensitive prophecies. So God, is, he knows what he's doing. He even has a, the ability to deal with fakes. Okay? Verse 9, let's go back to Nehemiah 2. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, or the, the great Euphrates, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. If we could put up the first image of the route that most likely he took. Now, people have a lot of questions. So here's Susa, which is now the Medo-Persian Empire. And here's the Tigris, Euphrates, which, by the way, I'm both mentioned in, in Genesis. And he takes his route. Now, if he went straight west to Jerusalem... It would have been the shortest distance, but the problem is there was the Syrio-Arabian desert, which was very hostile, and you probably wouldn't live through that journey. So most likely, because you could say, was it 800, 900 miles? Depends on the route he took. Most likely he went across. He goes up the Euphrates, which was always known as the Fertile Crescent. There's good, clean water to drink. There's lush vegetation because of the way the water spills out. And you would take that all the way northwest, end up, and by the way, this is Iraq, modern-day Iraq, this is modern-day Syria. Once you get to this point, there's trade routes that would bring you down to Jerusalem. So you see the journey. Pretty fascinating, pretty interesting. Um, long journey, a lot of logistics to the journey, caravans, uh, timber, all kinds of animals, people, etc. So there's a lot going on here. 
And what the Bible tells us is that the king also sends a cohort of protection. Now he's got soldiers with him, pretty nice. Here, here he is in chapter 1 saying, how am I going to do this? In chapter 2, everything's happening for this man. But remember, he had a desire to do God's will. Okay? Verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Well, guess what? When you step up to serve the Lord, don't be surprised when there's others who are not so interested, who don't have your zeal. Okay? Satan will stir up people to try to disrupt the work of the Lord, and, and we see that here. And I really want to encourage you that most of us will probably never do something this grandiose, but God will have us do simple things. Maybe start a ministry, maybe, you know, maybe an unofficial ministry, maybe ministering to other people. Now let me narrow it down even further. For those of you who are just trying to get right with the Lord, now maybe it's a personal thing, maybe it's a, an addiction, maybe it's something that you're just trying to get clean of. Don't be surprised when there's others around you that are going to try to thwart what God is doing in your life. I have this conversation a lot. People don't want to leave your, their friends and associates. If they're good and they're supporting you, that's great. If they're trying to work against you and what God's doing in your life, then they're not. They're not loving you. you know, they can be toxic to you. Just a little, little point there. Verse 12, Then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, so returned... And the officials who did not know where I had gone or what I had done, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. So what's happening is here, he's kind of going on this covert, you know, by night mission, which wasn't easy. They didn't have flashlights back then. Um, don't know what the constellation looked like back then. At best, he had a, a torch, had a few people that he could really trust, his animal, and he's going to look at the situation. He's surveying the land. And there's something I learned a long time ago, and it, this, uh, uh, this applies to every facet of our lives. It's called facts before acts. Especially something this big, before we engage in something that big, what are the facts? What's the situation? How does it look? I would add this too, because that's a worldly term that I heard. It's, just, it's still a good term. Make sure prayer is a part of that as well. Seek the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do here? What's this? This is pretty, this is a lot. Now, he doesn't want to attract a lot of attention from his own people. I'm going to address that too. Let's put up image number two. Okay. This is the Temple Mount now. Okay, this area. This is where the temple used to stand. These are the old gates and walls. Okay, over here, superimposed, is what the modern walls look like in Jerusalem. And you can see pictures of these, it's fascinating. So you've got the temple here. And over here you can see the, there's the valley gate. He makes his way around 
the fountain gate, the refuse gate. This is the pool. Some people believe that that pool is actually the pool of Siloam, where Jesus sends the blind man to receive sight again. So there's a lot of detail in this. I always say this for those of my who are not convinced about the Bible. If you're going to lie about something, you're not going to put detail in. You're not. Because more, more details you put in, and you're lying, that can easily be found out. Liars stick with generalities, and their stories morph over time. This is fascinating. So you can see all the things he does. Um, I'm sorry, the, let's see, the pool of Siloam. Okay, yeah. All right, so the, so that's, that's, what you, that's what you have going on, and that's what he's doing. He's surveying the land. I'm going to read verse 16 again. Now remember, he's, he's, he's Jewish. There, there was no Christianity yet. Christ had not come. And he says, I had not yet told the Jews, he's Jewish, the priests, who were the spiritual leaders of the Jews, the nobles, the officials, and others who did the work. Something should strike you here. He did not tell his own people what he was doing. And some of you are shaking your head. You know where I'm going with this. Because in Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6, men of Judah, other Jews, okay, made these political alliances and they discouraged the work of rebuilding the walls and the, t and the gates. God's people, some of them, were traitors. You know, the Apostle Paul says, not all of Israel is Israel, right? How many died in the desert from, from God's judgment? And you can make the same thing today. A lot of people say they're Christians. Probably, if persecution comes heavily in the United States, you'll see a, a great shaking. And the people who really weren't in it for God or a relationship with him, they'll, they'll blow away like chaff. And you'll see who the real Christians are. Okay? Hey, we're Jewish. Hey, we're Christian. Hey, we follow the traditions. Hey, we go to church. Hey, we go to synagogue. Big deal. Do you have a relationship with the living God? Because that's what matters in the end. See the same thing today. Those that are compromisers, the attitude is don't rock the boat. How many political alliances, how many of these ministers get so big and powerful that they become part of the political machine? And they have these titles, and you're just like, I would never call them that to their face. I'd call them mister. I wouldn't call them reverend or pastor or whatever because they've totally sold their souls to, to the world, to the things of the world. They're not, they're not for God anymore. What bad examples. Even, even like some of them, the, the, the attitude is, well, we like the way the old ways were. God always does a new work. The parable of the wineskins. Okay, and some people are like old wineskins. They can't hold the Holy Spirit. They can't move with the Holy Spirit because they're so stuck in what God did 50 years ago that they can't get past that. Okay, and to some that may be offensive, but it, it's, it's reality. It's reality. None of this, honestly, none of this surprises me because I've seen it in the aggregate church. I've seen it in Calvary Chapel. Just saying. So it is what it is. Verse 17 then I said to him, or to them, so now, he, now the daylight comes and he exhorts the people. He assesses the situation. He knows what he has to do. He says, then I said, to, what a planning guy. He says, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, never, leave, never forgets God, the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. 
Then they set their hands to do this good work. Nehemiah encourages the people. Part of being a leader is to motivate. Motivate. But not motivate, not to lie and make things seem rosy or sugar-coated. Nehemiah did not code anything. He was a realist. He goes, we're a reproach. He goes, this place is, is a mess. And I'm paraphrasing. I know a lot of you are really despondent. You're upset. I thank you for assembling together. But you know what? God can do this. We just have to trust him. We are called to be God's people, aren't we? This is a motivational leader, but he's also not making light of the dismal situation in Jerusalem. He challenges the people that it could be done. He tells them of God's good hand. And, oh, by the way, the king also said we could do this. Remember, God was first. Now, without the king of the universe's blessing, it didn't matter what the king of Persia said or did. Right? This, this had to be something that God was in. And I can tell you, I, I do the same thing. I present you. Sometimes, sometimes I go negative. I, I talk to you about what's going on in Western culture, America, the Christian culture. Sometimes what goes on in Calvary chapels. I've talked about things from the pulpit before. But it's not so that we could all become Christian Eeyores. Oh, poo, the state of the world is so dismal. A lot of Winnie the Pooh fans in here, okay? We're not to become Christian Eeyores and throw our hands up and give up. When God blows the trumpet, then we can rest. Brothers and sisters, we have work to do. The worse things are getting in our area, the more we should be used to glorify God. But one day the Lord's going to blow the trumpet and, hey, all right, it's time to rest, time to enjoy, time to sit at the Lord's feet. You know, and, and you might ask the question, well, why didn't they rise up before? Maybe discouragement. Discouragement, I tell you what, is one of Satan's greatest tools. If he can't tempt you to have a big sin you know, that takes people out of ministry... He'll pick at you every day. He'll nibble at you like a duck nibbling you to death. Little piece, little piece, little piece. That's what discouragement does. And they were discouraged. And they just threw up their hands and they didn't do anything. And then here comes Nehemiah. And I've got to tell you something too. Whether it was the Jews or the Christians today, not everybody in the church is a I can do all things through Christ Jesus type of Christian. Not all Christians are the type buy into the, well, all things are possible with God. They just don't. So be in Nehemiah. Verse 19, last two verses. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they left us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? Will you rebel against the king? They knew better. It was a lie. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Go ahead, watch it. Watch a work of God. You want to sit back and criticize it? You're going to watch the parade go by because God is in this. These people are named specifically. Sanballat, as, as we take all the, the portions of Scripture together, Sanballat was an officer from Beth Horon, which is the border of Samaria and Judah, meaning Jerusalem. This was a problem from the north. They're quickly. Not, not but a few miles. This guy is part of that, um, that region, okay, giving him trouble. Two, Tobiah the Ammonite, was, which is east of the Jordan, which is east of Jerusalem. You see the compass points now. They got problems from the north. They got problems from the east. east and Geshem, or Gashmu, the Arabian, was from the south, which was south of Jerusalem. 
These enemies represented the fact that Jerusalem was surrounded by enemies. Okay? And don't be surprised when you rise up to serve the Lord that you, maybe even some of your associates, they don't like what you're doing. And you have situations where you feel like you're getting penned in. But trust God, Nehemiah did. And I have to say that there are going to be some that, that make fun of you, that, that um, want to tempt you, want to tempt you back into being. They like the old you because the old you was fun. You know, we did bad things together. You know, we got bombed together. We did this together. That's not a friend. A friend would say, you know what, I'm glad you found something where you're bettering yourself. I support you. That's a friend. Okay, in the age of Facebook friends, we need to understand who are really friends and who are not friends. And a lot of the Jews were fine with these bordering people until the wall building started. Then there was animosity. Then there was tension. Think about it. I'll leave you with this. Three things that we can do in the face of ridicule and criticism, and then we'll close. So, three options. Number one, when we're criticized, maybe unfairly, we can ignore it. Now, ignore it. Don't give it any fuel to keep giving it life. It never dies when fuel is keep, it keeps getting added to it. And sometimes we add the fuel to it. Ignore it. In this situation, he could not. And I'll explain why in number two. Number two, sometimes you have to address it head on and push back as Nehemiah did. And there's going to be times that we have to do that. Now, why? Nehemiah was a leader. If he didn't address this situation, maybe those that were under him that started out fearful might revert back to fear again. You're a leader. You're motivating those under you, your subordinates. You can't allow this to come and not address it and not push it back, okay? The leader has to undergird those that are under them. Three, and this wasn't the case either, but remember, I'm giving, giving us an application for 2016. Three, sometimes we take some of it to heart. Again, it wasn't the case here. But I have to tell you that I was always taught 5, 10, 15%, somebody who attacks, criticizes, don't completely close it off. What is it that I can take and learn from? I've really been blessed by critics because I've taken a little bit here and a little bit there. Well, most of it was vitriol, but some of that was useful to me, and you change. Now, some people criticize because they're just mean. They're mean people. Maybe they're going through something. Maybe life didn't turn out the way they wanted, and they just want to spread the, the nastiness. And then you actually take some of what they say, and you improve, and they're even more angry. <laughs> yeah, but you said I'm this, and I should be this. Now I'm... They just wanted to hurt you. But heck, we can take some of that criticism and maybe recycle it and do something good with it. All right? Proverbs 9 tells us that the foolish person never takes advice, never takes correction. That person is a fool, the Bible says. The wise man or woman can take, hopefully, hopefully if it's us doing the criticize, we really pray about it and we do it in love and we're not nasty and it's not a personal attack. But the wise person can take that information, hmm, I could consider that, and possibly pray about it and do something with it and make yourself a better person. So there you have it. Optimistic. <laughs> so the title was Finding Favor with the King. And it's a play on words because you have the king of the universe and the king of Persia. So chapter 1 ends with a downcast Nehemiah. He's downcast. And regardless of the situation at hand, he prays to God and he leaves it in his hands. 
Four months later, we're in chapter 2. Nehemiah finds favor with the king of heaven and also the king of Persia. Let me ask you a question. What good thing in your life do you desire? It's in God's will. It's in God's word. You know, what good thing do you desire? Continue to pray to the king and ask for his favor. And I can tell you, because of the culture, it's, it's me too. I, I'm impatient. I, I have a confession. You know? I'm a lot more patient than I was when I started as a Christian, but I still need work. And because our culture is so fast-paced, four months to answer prayer. Sometimes God does it immediately. Sometimes it takes years. You know? So you never know. Nehemiah, similar to Nehemiah, may not happen overnight, but if it's according to his word and his will, you've got to trust it in his hands and don't give up. I want to leave you with this scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.